Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And as always, I'm so excited to be here today. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. And everybody, I'm shocked that this is the last episode of season three. It snuck up on me. And I can remember a number of months ago to putting together the content for what these episodes would be, looking forward to talking to the guests, and it's just crazy how time flies. But I'm really proud of the ground that we covered. I think that we hit some super important things this season. As I was putting together my notes for recording this intro, I was thinking back to the first seven episodes where we covered the seven steps of the retail sales process. And I think that that was awesome. I think that was really special to dive in specifically on those different steps. I'm thinking back to the conversation that I had with Alex Judd about leadership This season, we also talked about process and how important it is to build that. And then we also hit very recently the trade show and what we need to do if we want to be intentional and take advantage of that. So I know that we covered a lot of ground and I'm so thankful to you for sticking with this and making the choice to grow yourself and the people around you because ultimately that's what it's all about. And I know that you're making a difference. So this episode, as has become customary for the Firetime podcast, is a Q&A episode. And similar to seasons one and two, I've been collecting questions for the last really six months, and I wanted to address those specifically in this podcast episode. But what's kind of unique is that me and my friend Grant Falco actually got on Instagram Live, and we talked about these questions via a live social media broadcast. And that was actually really fun because we had a lot of people tuning in that were asking their own questions, and I think that there was a really cool feel to this. So down the road, we might do some similar things with different Q&As, trying to do those on Instagram live. So first of all, I want to say thank you to the people that tuned in live on Instagram. It was awesome getting to go back and forth with you and hear your questions. But I do want to point out that there was a little bit of audio bleed through. I actually learned a couple things recording Instagram live conversations for the podcast. But as I was listening back to this conversation, I think that we covered some really awesome ground in particular when it comes to service technicians installers and project management. I know that right now is just a crazy time of the year when everyone's running a million different directions. And based on the questions that you guys had, a lot of you were looking for very specific insight into how do I manage my service crews and my installation crews to ramp up as the season gets crazy and then scale down when things cool off. So I'm hoping that you guys are able to get some insight out of this conversation. And so I don't want to take too long in this introduction. This is a long episode. We had a lot of questions to get through. So I'm going to let this conversation play out. And as always, we'll circle back at the end and I'll give you some parting thoughts as we head into a few months off before season four. So without further ado, I hope you all enjoy the finale of season three. Here is the question and answer episode. All right. So joining me from Spokane, Washington is Grant Falco. I don't even need to introduce you. You've been on the podcast so much, Grant, but I really wanted to bring you in for the Q&A episode of season three. I I feel like these questions are loaded and I feel like you have some expertise that's really going to help us out here. So first of all, thanks for coming on board. I appreciate it, Tim. As always, I'm excited to tackle some of these questions as you give me kind of a heads up. Uh, I think we all struggle with all of these, even even you and I. I think it's, uh, you know, we're going to talk about these, but it doesn't mean we don't struggle with them as well. And we might have answers for us that work for us. And, and hopefully some people can take 
what we're doing and, and make it work for for them. Yeah, hundred percent. So, like I said, I've been taking questions for really the last like six months, ever since season two ended. And then a couple of days ago, when we started promoting this being live on Instagram, I got some questions in response from Instagram, and. I'm looking at them. It's going to be tough to get through all of them, especially if folks are going to be asking them live while we're going. So I think we'll just jump in and do the best that we can. So even if me and Grant are talking, feel free to interrupt, comment your question, and Grant will take a look at those and we'll get them answered here. Okay. So without further ado, let's get started. Ooh, question number one, Grant. This is awesome. This is from David in British Columbia, Canada. And he asks, what does a good sales rep do that a bad one doesn't? (laughs) <laughs> you want to take that first or should I? Uh, you can go ahead and, and take it first. I think it's important to, when I think of a sales rep, I think of two different types of people. And I don't know if there's maybe more than that or, or if that's not true, but I think of the sales rep in my store and I think of the sales rep uh, that's calling on me, an outside sales rep from a vendor or distributor. And I think both approaches would be similar, but I think both deserve uh, discussion. Yeah, and, and this is this is actually one that's from the distribution or the manufacturer's angle. So let's, let's take that. So I think that when it asks the question, what does a good sales rep do that a bad one doesn't? I think that a good sales rep has a plan. Always a bad sales rep shows up with no appointment and no plan and just opens up the catalog and says, Hey, what do you think? Where a good sales rep has a plan intentionally thinking about what's the business that I'm going after. And I think at the heart of it, how can the solutions that I have alleviate the problems that this business has? And I think that that's a huge thing. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think also maybe like even before you have a plan as a sales rep, it's important to know your customer and to understand your customer's problems. And so I think understanding your customer and understanding your customer's problems, getting to know them a little bit, and then coming up with a plan that serves them. And ultimately, Tim, what I want out of every sales rep Every single one, it doesn't matter if it's barbecues, fireplace or whatever, I want them to make my life easy. Yeah. How, how do they do that? And, and I think really like we don't have many good reps, honestly, but, but a couple of them, like one I can think of is Art Ratcliffe from Mendota is an amazing rep. And the things I appreciate about Art is that when he comes to our business, he is coming, he understands the problems that I have and he's asking, how can I come alongside to train your team, to offer them support and to, you know, get them the tools that they need to sell more products. And what he's also doing is he's also able to answer the phone. He has a good degree of technical knowledge and he's somebody that's always available where sometimes you get reps that like when a problem comes up, they kind of forget where their phone is and they don't call you back. I think that the mark of a good rep is that they're not afraid of delivering bad news and they're with you to help your business through that. Yeah, I think Art Ratcliffe is a great example. He uh, sold the ICC chimney to me 10 years ago. And really, we still follow so much of what Art had given us. And it was because he understood we weren't doing that. He gave us a plan and it allowed us to sell the product a lot easier because of, of how he set us up. Art is a great guy. Yeah. So let's tee you up here then. What's a bad rep do? Um, I think uh, kind of comes in and talks about himself or talks about their product when it has no correlation to what you do. Yeah. Doesn't schedule a time 
uh, I have a hard time with that. And and if you have high expectations to to make an imprint on me, it's definitely a difficult task when you come in somewhat unscheduled. Yep. But yeah, coming in with a, a plan of how to solve my problems and my, make my life easier is what I'm looking for in almost all situations, whether it's a rep that calls on me the first time or the, the 20th time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that like, one of the things that is that is so like true of bad reps, like you said, is that they make it all about them and they don't have a clue about anything that your business needs. They're just out trying to sell SKUs out of the catalog. And I, I think about it almost in like a dating relationship, right? So like if if a rep is selling to you, you're in some kind of a dating relationship, right? You're not married. You could go elsewhere, but you're in a dating relationship. So, you know, if you're in a dating relationship with another person, do you go into your dates without a plan? Hey, I don't know. I, what are you What are you doing today? Well, I'm just I'm hanging out in my boxer shorts, eating cereal, and watching TV. What What do you think? Want to come over? Like, no, right? You got to have a plan, and and the plan has got to be for the betterment of the relationship. And I think that, you know, it really comes down to is a rep does a rep understand deeply the problems that my business has, and are they coming to the table with solutions to help me solve it? If they If they do that, I think that's a good rep. 100%. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Now, we're actually going to do more on this. Next season, I'm going to be recording an episode with a couple different distributors where we're going to dive really deep into how a rep can up their game and basically help dealers more and provide better solutions. So we're going to stop that question so we can move on to the next ones, but just know that in season four, this is going to come up. Okay. Question number two. This is a good one. Grant, I'm going to ask you this. This is from, I'm, this is actually from an anonymous person because it, it is a, it's a sensitive issue, so I don't want to name the company. How do you find ways to retain and train installers and service techs plus create the right compensation for them? So this is a struggle we all face, right? And uh, it's, it's difficult to keep them. It's tough, difficult to get the right employees. Um, you know, my first response, and I have tons of responses to this, is, is uh, creating a, a structure for your service team, your installation team. Uh, in this situation, I think you reference both. First of all, when hiring, you have to have a plan on who you're going after. So if you're hiring installers and service technicians just as as they come in, uh, I believe you have to, to maybe take a different approach. Uh, we're all in the fireplace business and we're looking for people that have somewhat of an understanding, but it's very difficult to find. So I have uh, kind of looked at the HVAC um, schools around here and I'm not going to get a lot of the A dealers, but I do get or the A uh, students, but I do get a lot of the B yep. and C students that are willing to work hard, have a base knowledge. And I start there with almost every one of our installers or service guys. Now to retain them, and Tim and you and I talk about this a lot, I believe it's vital to have a structure that allows your employees to win. Yeah, I would suggest weekly meetings. I would suggest a scoreboard of, of performance. And, and we can talk about that. And I believe that employees want to win. Yeah. So on a weekly basis, if you review performance, performance is good, they win. And the best part, Tim, they're happier because they're winning. They're more appreciated. And then when we're losing, we're not just ignoring it. We dive into it. We figure out. And we don't call it losing. We call it learning. Because yeah. if we're losing in some type of situation on our performance, we're really learning because that's what it's all about. So I think retaining is keeping employees happy. And keeping employees happy is making sure that they understand their role within the business 
and allow them to win at minimum on a, on a, on a weekly basis. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that. I think that that's really good. I think honestly, it, it all comes down to expectations. So as a company, you have to have set the expectations for what am I looking for in an installer and a service tech. And when, when you hire someone, you have to set expectations of, you know, how do we do a signature install step by step by step? You know, do they know how, you know, as, as a service technician, how do you work on a thermal pile on brand X fireplace? Like just being radically clear with what the expectations are so that they can actually do their job. But then also, like you said, putting together a scoreboard where we're actually measuring the effectiveness of everybody. So we realize like we're all in it together. And I think the last part of it is giving team members a plan. So when someone gets hired saying, what do you want to be long-term? You know, if you're a young kid that hasn't gone to college and you say, well, long-term, here's what we can do. We can get you to the point where you have your own truck. You've got your own book of business. You can start to earn a commission on the things that you sell and make an amazing income, right? If it's someone that's a little bit older and, and maybe they've been a service tech for a while, you can say, well, I want you to be a part of building the process of teaching and training. And down the road, once you've built this out, you can become the manager. I mean, so I think that, I think that having expectations for them doing their job the right way when they're hired so they don't fight frustration and burnout is critical. And then realizing that there's got to be a scoreboard aspect where the team is judged on performance so that we can work together. And then lastly, showing that there is a plan for their success. I think that that's going to help quite a bit. And I think something that I'll I'll add to that you said there is allowing them to be a part of that investment so that they know what the plan is so that they're part of it. So they have a, they have a say in it and, and you'll be surprised at what they have as far as feedback, especially if you keep it on a structure in a weekly meeting to give them that voice. Yep. And I know you, like, I feel like no one's better at this than you. And, And you've done a really good job of, of putting together really goals and, and, and check marks that like, we're trying to achieve this level and everyone knows about it. Like we're not hiding anything. And I think that you found there's been people that have maybe been more cynical at the beginning that have come around as the team aspect is introduced, right? Yeah. It, it takes a leader to, to, to kind of push through those hard and, and difficult times. And, uh, I was just asked today, what would be the difference in your culture? Uh, in, why is your culture better at Falco's today than it was two years ago? And I would single-handedly tie it back to weekly structure of meetings, reviewing the performance, yeah. discussing investment, and having a plan for each employee and each department yep. on a weekly basis. Yep. And it is extraordinarily difficult. Oh. And everybody hits a pause. And people are embarrassed sometimes. But man, I can't tell you how much it has changed our business. And I talk about it with you all the time. But I got to four installation crews this year, and I had two installation crews two years ago. And the only way we got there was building it as a team through a weekly structure, performance investment, open and urgent discussion, solving problems and learning, and just continuing on on a weekly basis. Yeah, dude, that's that's amazing. I I think that's so cool. Okay, so question number three. We're moving fast because there's a lot of questions, and I really do want to get to all of these. Here's the next one. And, and actually, I, I'm going to let you answer this because I think I think you've got the expertise on it. Okay. So basically, it was a question on just handling in-season overflow of service. Handling overflow is a, is a problem for every single company. We're seasonal. Customers are not going to think about getting their appliance no matter how much we advertise. I mean, we can advertise and we can pull people out of the market in August and, and July, but it's still difficult and everybody just thinks about the service when it gets cold. So we know that that's yep. something that's going to yep. continue to be a problem. 
I believe the focus uh, ends up being in the off season or the preseason or what we call the invest season. And I believe you have to figure out how to sell just enough service on clean and checks, preventative maintenance plans in the off season to get extra people trained and ready to go in the season. If you were breaking even or losing a little bit of money in the off season with three service techs versus the two that you had last year, that's okay because none of us have enough people to take care of all the service business that comes in the season. And that's even if you're servicing your own product. So it starts at the beginning, starts in the off season on figuring out what your plan is and you hire an extra technician. You yeah. take an overhead hit because the payoff is 30% greater oh, yeah. in the season. And you do that and you repeat over and over again. Again, I'll go back to our story. Three years ago, we had one service tech and it was out a hundred services. Yeah. Got to two and now we're at three service techs. We have currently 280 services on the schedule. We can't keep up and we will try to add one again. But all summer long, I had questions from my parents on how are you spending this amount of money in the off season and how are you justifying it? And it's because there's a payoff that we all have coming and we have to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah, that's really good. And I, and I think that, you know, what, what we all know is that if we only had more installers and service techs, we could all sell twice as much as we are right now. We, and, and we say the same thing every single year. And, and, and it's all about budgeting, right? I mean, you spend, you spend like the first six months of the year hiring and training those people to get them ready. I mean, if you budget your money the right way, Dude, I trust sales to take care of it on the back end, right? Like if we're if we're if we can get through it with the service tech and yeah, maybe we're running a little bit higher for overhead or our our margins are down a little bit more than they should be, you know, what what we can do is, man, trust sales. Like maybe that's when you you pump a little bit more advertising with your sales teams. I was talking to a, one of my team members about this the other day is, you know, I think the economy is going to soften here in the next couple of years. And we were talking about sales numbers and things like that down the road, and I'm convinced that even if the economy softens, there is so much equity in just being diligent in the follow-up, in asking for referrals. Whenever you go do a, a job walk, go put up door hangers at five houses on each side. I mean, like these are silly things that a lot of people don't do, but there's so much equity to be had regardless of what the economy is doing. Like I think that exactly like you're saying, you slowly add service techs and installers whenever you can find them or if you can train them in the off season and don't go crazy but like add one or two every single year no matter what and dude trust your sales your sales will get you through in the busy season couldn't agree more there's a question here it's grant do you keep them on all year or lay off and so i will answer that because i've done it differently in the last couple of years so the first couple of years um we would do uh a couple days a week of, of a layoff to get through it. And that's the only thing I knew to do. Uh, I didn't have enough revenue on the sales side to cover it. Didn't understand uh, preventative maintenance and things like that, which we do now, Absolutely. which really helps us get the season. Um, but this year we actually added our third service tech as we put a dual team together all summer. He started out doing all our cleaning checks and then my other two guys do all our repairs, and uh, now he's getting into the repairs. And he's actually turned into one of our best service technicians uh, in proposing the repair uh, because he just he looks at it in a simple way, and they have a replacement level, and uh, it's actually turned out great. The one thing that I, 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 I saw this year is we had 190 services on the schedule 
last year at the same time with two service techs. Just by adding one third, one more service tech added 80 services. And I looked at my staff and I was like, do you think if I added another service tech, we could add 80 more services? And the answer is yes. Yes. And so you have to continue to invest in that. And you have to, I understand we went through a slow time 10 years ago and that scares us, but we have to fight through that. We have to figure out how to turn over some cash and keep these yep. people on retainer. And you have to invest into them. Yeah, absolutely. Grant, that's a perfect answer. I'm not going to add anything to it. I think that's amazing. Okay. Since you got to take that last question, I'm taking this next one. This question says, who is the best looking guitar player in In Bloom? And that is by my friend DJ. And since DJ doesn't have the microphone, I think that I'm the best looking guitar player with a microphone and the voice of a podcast in In Bloom. It's no question. So thank you, DJ, for asking that. That's hilarious. Um, okay, so let's let's jump into here, and this is one. I'm going to keep it anonymous. I'm going to actually change the question a little bit because this is from the president of a manufacturer, and the question was was it was kind of a silly question that was directed at me specifically. But I'm going to tweak the question just a little bit for our audience because I think if you're a manufacturer or a distributor that's listening to this, it's super important. But essentially, what this president is asking is, what can we do better? to earn business from companies that we don't currently work with. And the reason I'm rephrasing this is there's a little more specific. I'm not going to reveal who the manufacturer was, but it's an amazing question. So if you're a manufacturer or a distributor and you know of a great business, like maybe you're trying to get into Falco's, right, to, to work with you, Grant, or the company I work for, Fireside, does a lot of work or whatever the company is, right? If you're looking to get into a business like that, what does a manufacturer need to do? Man, I think that's a loaded question. And so it's a difficult, I think there's probably multitude of right answers, right? And I just keep going back to uh, my life is complicated as a business owner and as a, you know, wearing all the hats that we do, we all our lives are complicated. And so I come back to a manufacturer and their sales representative and whoever is calling on us really needs to understand who I am how I operate. Yeah. I don't know how they figure that out. I'm not saying that I'm going to give them all that information, but I think there's ways that they can do it. Sure. I mean, it's not like you haven't been on a podcast talking for like six hours about your struggles and, and everything that business needs, right? <laughs> exactly. I understand it's not obvious, but I do expect that. And I think that it's very easy to understand that. And I think it's just a little bit of research coming up with a plan to how your product solves my problems, yep. whether it's how I do business and, 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 and how easy it is to do business with you or whether it's an external problem that our customers have and this product solves their problem and yep. it works within my company's uh, scope of work if they, if they understand it. Yeah. And, and I'll say this too. So I think, I think a lot of it comes down to ROI. So like if you have a business like Falco's is successful with or without you taking on a manufacturer, so is Fireside, right? So I think that the question is really showing a business what their ROI is, show them what they're missing out on. So like, you know, I know there's an example of a company that you just took on recently that is like challenging a long held one that you've had. And the new company is coming to you showing you, hey, you're leaving dollars on the table with customers. You're missing opportunity. We have marketing efforts. We can go out and get customers. We have products that are unique and that buyers in your market want. All of a sudden, Grant Falco starts to go, wait a minute. 
okay, like I'm interested. Talk to me, right? I mean, is that fair? 100%. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, if you come in, and I think we've talked about this on the sales side, if you come in understanding my problems better than I do, I'm with you every time. Yep. And if your product is solving some of those problems, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to bend my ear. I'm going to listen and we're probably going to end up doing some business. Totally. It's amazing though, Tim. I still get to this day this 15-year-old sales pitch that I see through that has no relevance to what I do and I feel like I'm wasting my time. Yeah, totally. And and I'll give an example about, you know, my company Fireside. So there's like there's a lot of different products that are out there, but for us like one thing that we just don't have much of a presence in is like we don't do much with barbecues and we don't do much with fire pits. And the reason why it has to do with like the way that our business model is set up, it's just it's not a venture that we've gone after really intentionally. And so, and so we have all the time, a lot of people come to us and say, Hey, take on our barbecues, take on our fire pits. Cause what they see is they see, Oh, you've got six stores, right? That's gotta be a ton of volume. They're just salivating for the, for the chance to win a PO, assuming that if they can just get it in the showroom, it's going to take care of itself. But that's not the way it works, right? We could take on their barbecues or their fire pits, whatever it is. And if, and if nothing changes in the way that we do business, there won't be success with it. And so I think that the key is seeing opportunity. So, so studying out who are these big accounts that I want to go get. Maybe I send a rep there. Maybe I look at the competitive landscape to where someone can come to me and say, Hey, Tim, I understand that you don't do much in this side of things like the barbecue side or the, the fire pit side. We think there's an opportunity here that's missing in the market. This is how I would go to business on it. And not only that, we can actually send you leads. We can do marketing for you, right? Now, this is, I'm going off on a rant here, and this will be for a separate podcast, but I truly believe as a manufacturer, you should be responsible for increasing your dealer sales by half million dollars a year, easy, with leads that you are sending them, right? I mean, this is a little bit market dependent, but I believe that if you're a major manufacturer, you should be able to show your dealers. We grew your sales this year by a half million bucks over last year. We grew your sales by 750,000 over last year because of the leads that we sent you and the way that we helped you nurture them. And that's something that a lot of manufacturers aren't taking advantage of. But man, when you start to put together a value proposition like that, all of a sudden a business owner or a manager is thinking like, all right, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. Like, show me the way, right? Give me a path. Absolutely. Make it, I mean, in essence, you're again making it easy for them. And, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay. So Grant, what question do you have next on our list? Um, I have, uh, let's go with uh, owners, managers that compete with their sales team. Oh man. Yeah. I, I left this one anonymous because I don't want to obviously reveal, reveal the company, but yeah. What do you do in a company where owners and managers are competing with the salespeople? So can I, yeah, can I, I tell a funny story? Little, of course, go for it. Okay. So, so this is, this is just a funny thing. Um, I believe there should, there should never, ever, ever be competition between owners and managers and salespeople because honestly, if you as an owner or a manager have half a brain, you understand that the more successful a salesperson is, the more successful you are, period. End of story. Like zero, There should be no ego because the more successful they are, the more successful you are. So there have been times in the past where I've, I've had conversations with people like, you know, in our company, like is there's a lot of things in our company that are you know, we're still a work in progress, but one of the things that's amazing, I've had my boss, John Waterstrout on the podcast before. And like, he loves his people. He wants to see them win. And there's been times over the years where I've had someone be like, well, I mean, 
yeah, the owners are just scared that the salespeople are going to make too much money. And, and I'm like, that is literally the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, I don't even know what to say to that because number one, it's not true. And, and honestly, like it's usually an excuse for poor performance and bad behavior. 100%. So funny story, but anyway, what do you say? What if you're in a situation where there's a competition between ownership managers and, and salespeople? It's hard for me to understand that that a little bit. So uh, for those of you don't, that don't know, my father doesn't work in this company anymore, but he owns this company and he was on the sales floor when I entered into this company. But but truthfully, we've never had uh, uh, an ownership versus salesperson competition, uh, um, you know, resentment. We haven't really, I've never really experienced that. Now, it really, my dad's an, an exceptional salesperson and would always be able to sell, but he was never resentful of his sales staff for selling more or it was never a competition in that way. How I would answer that question is there shouldn't be competition yeah. between the owner and the sales staff and the owner should be working every day to not sell a thing. Yep. And the goal should be to enter into a year and not be able to sell any product and have your business grow. And that's when you'll know that you have kind of figured out. I believe in a, a, a saying, close enough is good enough. We do not need four of me out yep. there on the sales floor. And I think I'm the best sales floor. And I think I have staff listening. They'll probably laugh. But <laughs> I, I think I'm the best salesperson. But is it better for me to focus on me and be one salesperson out there, not run the business that needs to be ran, uh, and and worry about that? No, it's not. It's better to, on a weekly basis, train the four people that are as close as I can get them to yeah. me as salespeople and let them run with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. I mean, I, I feel, first of all, for you that voiced this question, I feel so, I, I feel so bad for you because it should not be that way. I mean, it shouldn't. Owners and managers should not compete with the sales teams. Uh, there can be people that have fragile egos that can't handle seeing someone be more successful. And I think that, you know, what I would say is I would do your best to show that you're in it for the team. I would do your best to address it directly. And my frank advice is that if you're in a situation like that and it's not going to change, someone else will appreciate you more. I'd go somewhere else in, into a better situation. I don't know. I think that's all there is to it. Yeah, I, I would I would end it by saying the more you invest into your sales team versus compete against them, uh, the more you're going to win. Yeah. And and honestly too is like as a as a leader or as a, like I'm not an owner of our of our company at Fireside. I'm I'm a, I'm one of the team leaders, but for me, my job like when you're in a leadership ownership management position, your job is to remove roadblocks so the people on your team can win. So for me, like I mentioned this a few weeks ago on the podcast, like, dude, I get stoked when my team members sell more than I ever did. I get stoked about it. Now, I still might think that I'm the best salesperson that I could go down there and, but it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not my job. You know, my job is to set them up to win. And if I am like, quote unquote, that good, then I should be able to turn myself into an amazing teacher to pass on what I've learned. And like, would it be better for me to prove that I could be the best and I disrupt everybody and make them feel bad? Or would it be better for me to give away my knowledge and create six of me that are selling more than I ever did, right? Yeah, I can't agree more. So we, uh, mid-November, I was uh, doing my job, which is 
analyzing the numbers, understanding where we're at as a business, looking at lead measures along with lag measures, and and noticing that we're having a slow up in November yeah. and kind of a surprising slow yeah. up. And looking that we have the next week is Thanksgiving, and and instead of out there trying to sell more product, I put together an incentive plan for the last 15 days of November, and I spiffed our three or four salespeople on revenue and total units sold. There you go. And we blew November out of the water. And I'm not saying it was all directly related to that, but an owner's investment needs to be in making them better, setting them up, incentivizing all those things that are going to get more out of those people each and every day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's an awesome answer. And that so that leads really well into this next one. So we actually had two questions and they both have to do with compensation. I'll read both of them. So one of them says, how do you satisfy your sales team with the right compensation? And then the other one, this is actually from Cindy in Pennsylvania, just the same thing, talking about how right now we don't have a commission plan, but we'd like to implement one. I read what you said in your Roadmap to Success book. Awesome. Thanks for downloading that. But I need more help navigating exactly how to build it. So I get a lot of questions about this, about building a compensation plan for sales folks. And I'm, I'm passionate about this. So I'm going to take this one, Grant, and you can, you can chime in if you want. I I really believe that salespeople should be paid on performance. And I believe that people will do the behavior that you incentivize. So if you incentivize them not to sell, i.e. don't change their level of pay as they sell more, they will do that behavior. Now, granted, if they're a good ethical worker, they're, they're still going to sell something. But the truth of the matter is that when you're paid on performance, your behavior changes. And it doesn't mean that you were bad before, but you cannot help it. And I experienced this firsthand where where previously I'd worked for other companies that didn't pay a commission. And and I like I was a pretty good salesperson. Like I sold a, a decent amount and I was pretty happy with what I did. All of a sudden when I moved into a role where my pay was dependent on my performance, dude, guess what? I started realizing, man, I could actually make a lot more phone calls than I do. I could actually be a lot more detailed on the proposals that I write up for customers. I could actually go out and do a lot more in-home visits. And it wasn't that I was trying to be lazy before, but it is the fact, like it is one of the fundamental rules of the universe. People will do the behavior that you incentivize, right? If you're a parent and you don't punish your kids when they sneak out of the house and get drunk at two in the morning, what are your kids going to do, right? If you encourage your kids to whatever, like, eat vegetables, go to church on Sunday and like do the right thing. Like it's, it's, it's as simple as like they will do what you reward. And so I'm very bullish on the fact that like you should pay on performance now with that. And I know I'm going on a rant here, but with that, there's different levels of a commission structure that are going to be right for different types of salespeople and also where both they and your company are at in regards to their maturity. So here's what I would recommend. I'm going to give you three commission structures, and these are just generic structures, but I think that they're going to be super helpful depending on the maturity of your sales team and and where your people are at. So option one is going to be where you have, you pay a base salary, whether that's hourly or salary, whatever, right? So you have, you have a base salary plus a commission after they've sold over a certain dollar amount. And one of the most important things that you can do for a salesperson is to teach them how to think like a business owner. It is the, one of the most important things you can do. So to have them understand that there is a cost to keeping you as an employee, and I want to pay you a commission, but we have to cover that 
cost first. So what I would do is I would set the base pay. I would set a commission percentage after they've sold over a certain threshold. And I would put that threshold low, you know, enough to cover whatever cost you need, but, but something that they really should be able to go after every month. Then I'd build a bonus structure where say if they sell, you know, $40,000 in a month, they get whatever it is, 300 bucks. If they sell $60,000 in a month, they get 500 bucks. If they sell $100,000 in a month, they get $1,000, whatever it is. Like, but, but they've got their base pay. They've got their commission once they've gone over a certain threshold, and you can set that to protect some of your costs, and then you set a three-tier bonus, where if they hit this number, they get this. If they hit this number, they get this. And 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 I would I would give them both. So like if you hit the second benchmark, you get the bonus for the first one too. If you hit the third benchmark, you get all three bonuses. This is a plan that is an amazing way to enter someone into being paid on performance, and it starts to get them to think like a business owner. Now, the next one is going to be once your once your team starts to get a little bit more mature in the way that they handle commission, what you can start to do is you can have a base pay. And then what you can do with your commission is you pay commission dollars on everything, but you set a number where if they sell below that number, it's a really small commission percentage. As soon as they cross over that threshold, their entire commission for the month doubles. So this has been an awesome incentive plan where people get excited to track their numbers because they're really trying, like they want that double commission because it's double commission on everything for the month. Now, the downside of this is that if they sell like $10 short of that amount, they're out some money. But this is something, again, that we've seen a lot of success with depending on the maturity level of the salespeople. And you can even throw in something like, what I like to do with team members in in this type of a plan is throw in a quarterly bonus. It's, I think it's really important for salespeople to think like a business owner and to be able to plan their weeks and their quarters ahead of time. And so what I would do is I would throw together a quarterly bonus where if they hit their sales goal for three months in a row, now this means that as a leader, you have to set a sales goal, you have to track it. But if they hit their sales goal for three months in a row, they get a percentage of that total back as a bonus. So that way they're thinking about something in, on a monthly basis, right? For the month, am I, I going to cross over and hit that double commission? Or for the quarter, they're working towards that goal. Okay. That's plan number two. Plan number three is straight commission. And I'll tell you personally for me, I am a huge fan of this, but only if the salesperson is mature enough to handle it. So I would never, ever start with this plan. But I would, as you're growing a salesperson through these different types of of, uh, compensation structures, I would be very transparent and tell them that your highest reward is going to be a full commission plan. Now, we got to make sure that you're in a spot maturity-wise to be able to handle that where you're not disrupting other team members. You're not trying to steal jobs from other people, but, and that's why I'm saying to be careful with this, but I would put together a full commission plan that is based on the installed margin of the products, not on top line, but on bottom line sales, installed margin. The reason this is only for an extremely mature salesperson is that they, you know, they have to realize that they're a professional. If they don't sell, they don't eat. They're also going to have to think about the fact that, that in business, right? That's how it is, right? If you're an owner of a business and there's no money coming in, there's no money, right? You don't eat. So the salespeople share in that, but their incentive, because there's no risk for the company, is significantly higher. So you can afford to pay a much higher commission percentage because there's no risk if it fails. And, you know, I know that I'm talking a lot here, but those are three types of commission plans that I think are really, really effective. I know I'm going for a while, Grant. What do you think about that? Well, I think you've covered 
all the the potential com- compensation plans and and definitely covered them on the sales side. The, the things that I would say are don't limit compensation plans to sales only. Mm. So I would say that compensation plans and performance based uh, uh, wages should be how you are paying your service Absolutely. technicians and your installers. And there are a way to do that. It comes around goals and setting up key performance indicators so that they know where they're at in relation to their goals. But they want to hit that mark, and you want to compensate them to do that. It will keep them happier. It will keep them 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 more involved. And I just don't limit compensation to your sales staff only. Um, know your staff. Tim and I came across a situation that Tim had where he's implementing different structures and he chose to go with uh, a different structure for a different employee. And I think that's the right choice. He understood that he has his beliefs, but the right one for this employee was to, to alter it a little bit and still be completely fair. And so you really have to know your staff when you're coming up with these compensation plans. And then I was going to say this, Celebrate your sales staff because you need your sales staff to always be happy, always on their Absolutely. game. Celebrate them. Help them with the struggles. Get them through. If, they have, if they're worried about this X, Y, and Z, remove it from them as fast as you can because you yes. need their head in the sales game. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. And we get a ton of questions about that. Maybe we'll have to do a a more in-depth episode at some point on how to build compensation plans. Because you're right, it's not a one-size-fits-all. That story that you told about my team member, I I, I felt like I was trying to push them towards a certain plan that I knew would pay them more. And I was being super transparent with them that, hey, this will pay you the most money. I want to pay you the most money. The way that their personality worked, though, is they felt much more comfortable taking a plan that had less risk and was safer, even though they would end up making less money. And at the end of the day, I said, no problem. This other plan is, is here. If you ever want to make the move, I want you to do what's right for you. Yeah. And how's that worked out? Awesome. Yeah, it's been awesome, man. You were, you were actually instrumental in giving me some good advice on that. We'll get back to our live Q&A in just one second. Hey, Christmas time is almost here, and if you haven't started already, it's time to begin thinking about 2020. And honestly, if you're looking for ways to grow your business, the first thing you need to think about is the way that your website relates to customers. Now, you've heard me for the last number of weeks on this podcast talk about the fact that most websites are leaking money. And this is totally true. There's three fundamental reasons why most websites in our industry are leaking. And this is true whether you're at the retail level or the manufacturer level. Now, the problem when you have a website that's leaking is that you can spend tons of money on marketing initiatives, and it could even be good marketing. But if it sends customers to a website that has no way to turn them into a lead or to nurture them down the sales funnel, they'll get confused and hit the back button, and your amazing marketing might have convinced them to buy a fireplace from somebody else. So if you want to learn how to patch these three holes, I've got a free video course and it's called Three Reasons Your Website is Leaking Money. Now, this is totally free. You can go to yourwebsiteisleakingmoney.com and sign up today. That's yourwebsiteisleakingmoney.com. In 2020, your website should be making you money. Don't settle another day for a website that leaks. To learn what you need to do to patch the holes in your website, go to yourwebsiteisleakingmoney.com. Okay, so I want to ask this question now. This one's really good. And this actually came in from Instagram from Danny Kaler at Smokies in Medford. And, and Danny's just an awesome guy that's doing some cool things down there. And he is asking, how do you prioritize what jobs get done and scheduled? There's so many variables now. And 
I'm gonna, I'll jump in and take this at first, and then Grant, you can you can add anything if you want. So, what I think I think is absolutely right. There are a million variables, right? I mean, so many jobs like seem like they'd be easy because it's just a gas insert, but you run into complexity with all these different things. The way that our sales team does this is we track our open opportunities is we rate them on a scale of A, B, C, and D. And we have a kind of a rubric and a criteria that will make a job an A-level job or another job a B-level or a C-level job. For us, that's been something that's terrific because A-level jobs mean that they are generally high profit, low time, and low risk. And there's certain criteria that they have to meet to be an A-level job. B might be something else. And so for us, having a rubric like that has been very helpful. Um, yeah, I want to see what you think, Grant. I got one more thing I want to add to this after you talk. Well, we have a, a similar process. We've talked about this. Um, so uh, we have uh, one person that covers the three inside sales uh, people, and he does all their estimates, consultations, bids, whatever you want to call yeah. them. And uh he has a specific way he has to do his job each and every time. He follows pretty cookie-cutter protocol on how to do it. And uh, he, he always uh, line does a line item quote, and then he puts a scope of work at the bottom. And in that sales order, he will rank the job, and there's a couple different criteria. So we do uh, an R, basically anywhere from an R5 to an R10 is ranking the difficulty of the job. That is helping us determine what installation crew to put it on and why. Then we have an A, B, C, or D. And the A is for attitude, easy customer, high-paying job, a lot of the, the things you want in a job. And then as you go down that criteria, you just rank it a little bit different. If you have a, a customer that's grouchy from the very beginning and it's a low-paying job, and it's it's super easy. It's it's maybe an R six D. Yeah. And so when you're looking at the schedule, and our schedule is moving all the time. We don't sometimes product doesn't come in in oh, time, yeah. and we have to move stuff around. Our coordination team has it dialed in now, where they can look at the rank and they know exactly if they want to pull it up and and who they can put it on based on that ranking alone. And it's 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 changed our we we have only push postponed two installs all year uh, in, in dealing with uh, people being sick and uh, dealing with product being late, you know, those type of things. So it's been really yeah. good. One, one thing that we've done too, and, and this is only a luxury if you happen to have more installation crews, but it's something that's great to build towards is for us, we have divided up installation crew skill levels based on tier one, tier two, and tier three. And that's similar to, to what you've done, Grant. But we've just kind of created these three tier levels where we establish what does it take to be a tier one installer? You have to be able to do this, 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 and this. A tier two, this, 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 and this. Same thing for tier three. And so when the sales team sells a job and is sending it in to get scheduled, it's the sales team's responsibility to be able to accurately say, this is going to be a four-hour job, and we need at least one tier one installer on it. So I, th I think that it, it really probably comes down to defining expectations of what are the different levels of install, what are the different levels of how good the job is, and then um, honestly measuring the results. Are we are we close on what we're saying with with how long it's going to take? Are we are we missing it? Measuring those results and reviewing it. Yeah. One other thing too is I know of a dealer in Chicago that's done this, and this is an amazing idea. But it goes back to like I swear for us, and this is one of the things where for us, like we do all of our installation labor in house, where a lot of the competitors in at least the Portland metro area don't. So I swear that like once it gets cold, we get all the weird jobs, right? Like 200 feet of gas line up the corner, around the bend, through the woods, like all this weird stuff. 
And what this company in Chicago has done is during the busy season, they open up two days a week that are called the fast lane days. And jobs are only allowed to be scheduled in the fast lane that meet certain criteria. So like a gas to gas insert, that's a fast lane job. So if you for in that business, if you want to get a wood stove installed, it, it it's going to have to be only on one of the three days that's not a fast lane day because they're saying like, yeah, if it's a more complicated job, you can do it, but it's going to be a longer ETA. If it's a gas to gas insert or a gas log set where there's already gas in the fireplace, man, like that's a fast lane job. We were getting that done like ASAP. And I think that's a really smart idea too. I, I agree. I think I, I wrote that down as a note. I think that's an outstanding idea. We all wonder how to classify these and how to put the projects that are going to cost us money uh, out, you know, and, and do the projects that are going to make us more money in and get them in as soon as possible. And that fast lane two days a week is, uh, I think, an outstanding idea. And I think it's totally uh, feasible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And just and, and run it for three months a year and just see how it goes. Right. OK, so here is the next one. Oh, this is a great question. I'm going to ask you this, Grant. How do you get owners to recognize the value in getting your team members to either HPBA affiliate events or to factory training or even taking team members to the HPBA trade show? Yeah, uh, I, this is a struggle and I will admit that I haven't been the best at it. Um, uh, my dad owned this company, owns it still. And uh, so he's, he's at the trade show every year and so am I. And up until probably... Three years ago, um, we didn't really take anybody from Falco's. And it wasn't because uh, we didn't want to. And the economy wasn't the best, and we're moving into better times, but is it worth it? How much of an investment do you want to make? And so there was a lot of uh, two or three years of wondering if we should do it. In three years, we pulled the trigger. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that what's important at, that I've seen is the people that have joined us at the trade show and have joined us at uh, affiliate meetings and distributors, they feel more a part of the team. They, they want to invest more because they feel more a part of it. They totally. get rejuvenated. Uh, so just that alone for you is worth it. Um, not to mention the networking, the education, and the other things that come along with that, that give huge value uh, to your staff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I think it's one of those things. And, and this is something like, I think listeners of the podcast really understand this and, and maybe there's, there's folks that do too outside of the podcast audience, but the more that you invest in your people, the more loyal they're going to be. It doesn't mean they're not ever going to leave. I can't say that, but I guarantee the more you invest in them, you will get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to loyalty. And it's also the question too of like, man, if you're frustrated, if you're frustrated with areas of their performance, why not invest in training to solve those areas of performance, right? Like if you're running into a service tech that's always making mistakes on diagnosing a certain kind of fireplace, like, well, whose fault is it that they haven't gone out to the factory for training, right? And yeah, maybe it means putting them on a plane and, and paying for a hotel for a few days. But like you said, Grant, like what if they can get you an extra 80 service calls because of it? Like, I think that there's a pretty good ROI on that. So I think it comes down to you have to have a mentality that wants to learn. You have to have a mentality that wants to invest in your people. And ultimately, you know, I've just seen for myself personally, like as, as Fireside has invested in me, I've been at Fireside now for about seven years. And I remember right when I got hired here, they put me on a plane to California. And ironically, that was when I met Tim Rethlake for the first time. I sat through three days of, of training with him. But for me, like, how good did I feel? Like they put me on a plane by myself. Like I felt like, dude, they trust me. Like they're not supervising me or shop. Like they're, they trust me. They trust that I want to learn this stuff. And I, 
I think it just shows tremendous investment. And you know, you probably don't want to bring everyone in your company to the trade show, but man, like I would encourage like a sales contest or something with your installers or your service techs, like that there is a way they can go to this event. Or if you can't make it to the trade show, maybe you can't afford it. You're a small business. Like there's going to be some kind of a HPBA affiliate meeting that's close by. And I, you know, I guess what I would say is that it, it, it might be hard, but I would start to talk to your owners and your managers about what you want to get out of it. So like if you're looking at the HPBA show and you've never been able to go, I would go to your owner or your manager with a plan and say, hey, I've been thinking about it. My sales are at this right now. I've been looking at all the classes for the HPBA show. There's this class by Grant Falco I really want to go to. There's this class by this crazy guy named Tim Reed I want to go to. And I think that if I can go to these courses and really absorb this, not only can I learn about the competitors' products and their booths, I think I can sell an extra whatever, $100,000 this year, $150,000, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, you're not going to the business owner saying, give me $2,500 to go to this event, which is what a business owner will think as soon as you say, put me on a plane and send me to New Orleans. Instead, you're saying, I have an idea for a business plan that requires a small investment, but there's a huge return and I'd like to give that to you. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think something that we get asked uh, a lot and we haven't brought it up here, but you know, creating a culture within your business, a, a positive culture, a winning culture, a, a culture your employees want to be a part of. Um, it requires an investment on your part and an investment to get them to these functions because yeah. I believe the education helps in culture because they can solve problems faster and better. Yep. Being a part of the team is huge on culture. You think enough of them to invest that time and money and given the right people, they will. the return on investment will be great. But we hear a lot of it's difficult to create a good culture, especially in the season. And I think the more you invest in them and bring them to these type of things, it's, it's amazing the results. And it's, 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 obvious. I guarantee you any person that chooses to bring another person along this year and watch what they go through in the transformation, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, like, I'm just going to plug this. If if you're thinking about taking a team member to the trade show, please, please go to the education day on Wednesday. There's stuff for installers, service techs, salespeople. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how much value there is there. It is absolutely worth doing it. And I would say, you know, if you're going to send them for Thursday and Friday of the trade show, send them for Wednesday and Thursday instead. Okay, Grant, I've got two more no, I got three more questions. I want to see if we can get through these. My phone's actually starting to die. I might have to ask you a question then go find a charger. So we'll have to see if I do that. <laughs> but All right. Okay, I want to ask this question. I think that this actually pertains to you, Grant. This is actually from William in Minnesota. And and William, I got to apologize. It's been a couple months. I didn't respond back to your email because stuff was busy on my end and I really wanted to wait to address this in the podcast. So I'll send you a follow-up email that goes into detail on this. But he's asking the question. He says that, we are now looking into hiring a dedicated project manager that will be responsible for all the coordinating and planning of the install after the sales complete. Wondering if you could offer insight as to what this job description would look like and what are your project managers responsible for? And the, and the reason I want to ask you, Grant, is recently you did a couple things. So you've got someone on your team that has been kind of dedicated now to just new construction sales. And didn't you also bring someone on that has some experience doing project management? Yeah. Uh, so when, 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 when we talk about project management, I think there's two different ways of, of, of thinking about it. And so I will start with residential retail existing homes. So 
we have a store that has uh, three salespeople with a couple backups. And on the retail side, our project manager is basically one person and he goes out and project manages every existing home, whether it's a gas insert, wood stove, uh, pellet stove, and writes up the line, uh, scope of work, gets everything dialed in. But it's important to have a process in place that allows your sales staff to pass it off to the consultant, project manager, however you want to say it, and a process that passes it back in responsibility so that customer is assured to be taken care of. Um, on the new construction side, I think it's a, a kind of a, a step up of a, a process. It depends on the size of business you are, how much you're going after, and and what you're doing. But in our situation, I hired who was my third inside salesperson a year and a half ago, I hired him specifically to get him up to speed on fireplaces. He came from the the, the commercial construction world. He sold, sold glues and silicones and all these weird things in the, construct, in the construction world. And we trained him for a year and a half on fireplaces, just fireplaces. He sold inside sales residential. And what we did is we, we got – we, we built enough of a book on new construction that we determined it was okay to allow him to go out on his own. It was something we had never done before. We had always done it. It goes from salesperson A to consultant back to salesperson A. So now we created basically a salesperson project manager in one position. Got it. With the amount of work that we have, he is taking the whole responsibility from the time we get a print bid, from the time it hands off a customer in the showroom to him. He is managing that job from the very first communication with them to the final. And we do a walkthrough and a three-year preventative maintenance with every new construction job that we do. And so he kind of manages that to the end. And he is heavily incentivized to do that. He is taking on the burden but it's a full outside sales position. Yeah, I was going to say that, that he's not, he's not chained to the desk, right? He's got some freedom to do what he needs to do. He's expected to be in here on Mondays for a few hours. We have a, a Monday meeting, new construction team meeting every Monday where we talk about kind of our, our strategy and how things are going and our goals and stuff. Um, the plan is to grow that to dedicate an install team to him. And the lead installer on the new construction team right now is going to kind of slowly grow into a quasi-installer project manager. And as our book grows of new construction, there will be a salesperson and a project manager. And that will grow maybe one, two, hopefully a lot of installation crews for that. What I will say in regards to that is the salesperson has to be accountable to the project manager and the project manager project manager has to be able to hold the salesperson accountable and that has to be a relationship that works extraordinarily well in order to I think work properly. Yeah, and and it's it's easy and Grant we've talked about this where I feel like you naturally have an eye for detail and for process that is, I think, is really strong. And you've talked to me a lot through the course of our relationship about making sure that we're being methodical and that the salespeople are held accountable for the outcome of their jobs. Because what can happen is, and even and even as we talk in the podcast about making it easy and things like that, you know, people might wrongly get the impression that, well, then let's just not have salespeople responsible for anything. Let's just have them sell it and let someone else figure it out. That is not the answer, right? No. You, you know, you have to have, I, I do, I think you're right that the project manager has to be able to hold the salespeople accountable and the, and the owner or the manager, the leader of the company needs to support the project manager in that because the salespeople do have to be accountable for their jobs. And that's where if you pay the salespeople based on the installed percent margin of their products, 
all of a sudden their behavior starts to change. They start to listen to the project manager and the project manager says, look, you said this would take three hours. It took an extra crew plus six hours. The salesperson gets it because they see it in their bottom line on their paycheck. I agree. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Okay. This is a question that's from Dan Hetchler in Missouri. And again, I got to apologize. Dan emailed me months ago and I was trying to save it for this Q&A. And Dan, I promise I'll send you a follow-up email that kind of goes into a little bit more detail. But this is what I would say. So he asked the question of what does an effective website need to have on it? And I think that this is super, super important. And Dan, I thank you for being patient with this. But I believe that a website, number one, needs to have clarity. It needs to be crystal clear what you offer, and it needs to be crystal clear in showing the customer exactly what's going to work for them. You know, in in my video series that I did, Three Reasons That Websites Are Leaking Money, I talk about the fact that on a website, you know, number one, like customers are, they're looking for prices. They want to understand like what, even a ballpark of like, what is this going to cost me? I think on a website, customers want clarity and figuring out how can I get someone out to my house? And this is interesting to think about, like whether it's for a service technician, for uh, an in-home preview before you sell a job. I think that having some kind of a scheduling function is extremely important on a website. And then lastly, this is where I'm totally biased. I believe that websites actually need to be able to generate leads that have automated email follow-up to try to nurture that customer through the funnel. I think it all comes down to clarity though, right? Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree. Some of my notes indicate just making it easy, a clear message on the problems you solve for your customers, yeah. I think is extremely important. Um, and being solution-based, understanding who your customers are, you know, understanding what their problems are and, and on your website, exemplifying how you solve their problems. We're going through a a restructuring of our website and that's one of our biggest focuses. Um, I think a a few other things, uh, lead generation, I think figuring out a way to capture leads, not just, you know, contact us, but you and I have talked and you've, you've said this for a while, coming up with things on your website that create, um, create that lead, capture that, uh, that email address by saying the five things you need to know about your fireplace yeah. or uh, whatever it may be, but get them to click on it and generate a lead and then get your sales staff to mine that lead. But again, a website needs to be a lead generator. It needs to be simple. It needs to be solution-based. And the last thing I'll say is um, educate the consumer to yeah. get them uh, on a on a direction uh, of of a product that's going to solve their problem. So, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't agree more. You know, and I think I mean I'm just going to throw it out as a resource. You know, I've got a free video series that I've been talking about for this entire season that is titled Three Reasons Your Website Is Leaking Money," and you can get that totally for free by going to the website yourwebsiteisleakingmoney.com. There's some irony there, right? Go to the website, <laughs> yourwebsiteisleakingmoney.com. But that's going to go over a lot. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw another one at you too, is I think that Donald Miller has an amazing website series that is at 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. And in that, Donald Miller talks about how your website needs to be able to pass the grunt test. And basically, he says within five seconds, you need to be able to answer three questions. Question one is, what do I offer? Question two is, how does it make my life better? And question three is, what do I need to do to buy? So I think those are two resources that will start to take you to some really, really good places with your website. Okay, Grant. Absolutely. I got one last question, unless you got anything. No, shoot. Okay, okay here we go. Last one. Man, this, this episode is going to be a marathon episode. This is from, again, this is anonymous. This is from one of our friends out of Toronto, Canada, though. 
And he asked the question, how do I hire and train a new salesperson who's outside of our family? Okay. What do you think? (laughs) Well, that is a, uh, I understand that question. Um, And I think it goes back to so many of the things that we talked about. Uh, I think one of the things I'll speak to the transition of going from, you know, like doing it all yourself to um, actually training a staff. I think one of the most important things you need to do as an owner is you really need to kind of reboot yourself and you need to truly think about and truly spend time digging into why you do things. All the people that are looking to do this have so much knowledge and so much value in that head, but you don't have time to remember and understand why you make all those awesome decisions that you've made. And you have to figure that out. And then you have to figure out how to train that salesperson as best as you can to replace you. Yep. I totally agree. And I I mean, I, 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 I just I, I strongly feel like it's it starts with you figuring out why you do things, yeah. and then it, it comes to finding the right person and and being able to hand some responsibility and some 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 uh, liability off in in a salesperson. So I agree, and I think the question is, is a great question because the fact that that he references who's outside of our family implies a lot about the business that that this business is one that has been grown and I know this business a very successful like but they've been grown that way through the family and this is the quintessential problem that a lot of hearth companies have is they grow to a certain point within their family and if they want to grow bigger they got to be able to let things go give power away I'm, I'm, I'm whenever I talk in leadership I say you know my job as a leader is to give power away to empower other people so I think that you're right, Grant, that, that you have to start thinking bigger and you have to start thinking about why. But being super practical here, what I would say is, is to train someone new, they're not going to have the inherent family tribal knowledge that you do. So you got to start documenting. So I would drop a super clear job description of what your expectations are. And, and, and everybody in the company knows if they do these things, they'll win. If they don't do these things, they'll lose. Next is I would provide them with simple pricing tools. Again, we're thinking about a new salesperson, maybe someone new in the industry, or maybe it's someone that has experience. I would create easy pricing tools that make it simple for them to write up quotes and to sell. And then lastly, I would give them sales goals. So like whenever I bring in a new salesperson, I try to be radically transparent with the commission structure and the compensation plan. And I, and I show them this is the plan. And if you make these sales, this is how much money you're going to make. By the way, here's some records of other salespeople of what they've done in year one, year two, and year three. Here's some of our current top performers so that you can start to see where your expectations should be. And and this is something for me that has been just so, so helpful in, in clearly painting those expectations. And I think it's so simple, but I think having the transparency to say, yeah, this is what these other people did in year one. This is what they did in year two to show that we can get you there. Now, in order to get there, you have to play ball. And, and I think the fact that you can show, hey, I've had other people that we've grown to this space. I can take you there too if you're willing to learn. If you're not willing to learn, you're going to hate your life and quit. I think that that's super, super important. I agree with all that, all of it. Yeah, and I think that I think that with salespeople too, sales sales is tough, and and this kind of goes back to the the family piece that, and I, and I guess earlier in the episode when when the person mentioned owners and managers that compete with their sales team, 
in family dynamics, it is hard to let go. When you've built a business to a certain point, I mean, every every great business person knows this, when you've built the business to a certain point, everybody hits a cap. There's only so much that they can do, right, Grant? There's only so much you can yeah. do. There's only so much I can do. There is only yep. so much I can do. If I am not willing to, number one, realize that, and number two, give somebody else my power so that they can go somewhere I haven't, or to, or maybe they can do what I was doing so that I can go somewhere the company hasn't been before, you will never grow and you'll only fight frustration. I think in a family business, intellectually, it's easy to say, yeah, I'd like to bring someone in that can sell a lot. But the questions you have to answer is, well, okay, are you humble enough for them to have better success than your son? Are you humble enough to give them your accounts that you've been managing for the last 10 years, right? Now, you don't do this all at once, but those are questions that you really have to answer. But I think it, I think it comes down to framing expectations of clarity. You've got to have a training process, right? You know, I've got an onboarding class that I put together with Jerry Eisenhower on the CBC coaching networks that goes through what the first 30 days should look like. You should have a training process. Like for me, when we bring somebody in, man, my first like their first three months of the company, they spend a lot of time with me that, that is not normally spent when, once someone is up and going. But I think you got to have a radically intentional training program. And if you can give them tools by making it easy to sell, you give them a compensation plan that shows that they can make the money that they want, I think you're going to be in a really good spot. Yeah, and I'll add one more thing. We've referenced uh, making it easy quite a bit in this uh, podcast. And, and, and it's an intimidating saying. When, you, when you're saying you're going to make it easy, uh, you have to realize that it's not easy to make it easy. Yes. And you as an owner have a responsibility to put the legwork in and, and make it easy for that employee. And that starts with the tr- onboarding and training program and a clear job description and clear expectations of, of, of what is expected from that employee, uh, which is a whole other topic. But yeah, all great stuff, Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Grant, this has been amazing. I'm so stoked for all of you that have been watching live on Instagram. This is going to air this coming Tuesday as the finale to season three. And I mean, you know, Grant, you're a guest that spent a lot of time in this podcast. You were one of the first guests that we had back in season one. And for me, I'm just, I'm humbled at how this podcast has grown and the community that's being formed in it. So I want to thank you for being a part of that. And dude, your insight here was awesome today. Tim, I, I, I'm humbled every time I'm on this and, and, and every time I talk to you, I enjoy um, the, uh, the interaction immensely. And, you know, we solve problems every day, we, but we wonder where to go. We don't, we don't know where to get help. And, and the cool part about, you know, the, this podcast, your podcast and these Q&As are we're all in this together. And uh, I just feel uh, blessed to be a part of solving some of these problems. And, and uh, I look to continue to grow from it. It's, it's been an absolutely awesome ride so far. Awesome, man. Well, okay, before we leave, I would be remiss to not mention the Expo Meetup. So we are going to be meeting up on Wednesday, March 11th. If you're going to be in New Orleans at the HPBA trade show, you've got to come out from 5 to 6 p.m., to Public Belt. It's on the second floor of the Hilton Riverside, which is the headquarters hotel for the HPBA show. I cannot wait to see you guys out there. To RSVP, go to the website itsfiretime.com slash meetup. That's itsfiretime.com slash meetup. You'll see me there. I've got the word that Tim Rethlake is going to be there. Grant, you think we'll see yourself there? I will be there. All right. Perfect. Well, you heard it here first, guys. Thank you once again. We're going to take the next few months to get ready for the trade show, and I can't wait to come running out of the gate 
with season four. Wow. Guys, that was a marathon episode, and I thank you for making it this far. But I hope you got some serious value out of that. I think that we were able to hit some really, really good questions and honestly, some things that we haven't talked about a ton in this podcast. So, Grant, thanks as always for coming on board the podcast. That was really, really fun to answer those questions with you. All right. So, as we head out to Christmas time and then eventually into 2020, I want to leave you guys with just a few parting thoughts. One is this. Like we mentioned at the end of the episode, if you're going to be at the HPB Expo this year in New Orleans, I really hope to see you at the Firetime Podcast Meetup. Now, that's going to be on Wednesday, March 11th from 5 to 6 p.m. at the Public Belt in New Orleans. That's on the second level of the Hilton Riverside. And to RSVP, you can go to the website, itsfiretime.com slash meetup. That's itsfiretime.com slash meetup. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but 2020 is going to be pretty crazy for me with speaking engagements. And I'm really excited because I'm going to be traveling to a lot of different spots in the country to talk about leadership, marketing, sales, process, and a lot of the different things that we discuss here in this podcast. So there's still some dates up in the air, but I can give you guys a list of the cities that I'm going to be in at some point in 2020. So, so far, it's going to be New Orleans, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Fort Worth, Texas, Salem, Oregon, I'm headed to Wisconsin, and Houston, Texas. Now, I'm also working on some Canadian dates as well, so stay tuned on that. And as things get closer, I'll let you know the specific day and venue. But if you live anywhere in that area, I hope that you come out to one of these speaking events. I'd love to get to say hi and meet you firsthand. So 2020 is going to be busy, but I'm hoping to see as many of you as possible at some point on the Firetime Tour. Now, season three is in the books. And as we look ahead to season four, I'm really stoked on a lot of the content that we're planning. We've already got a lot of guests lined up, and I'm going to be working on fine-tuning the content between now and when season four airs in March. So episode one of season four is going to be live at the HPB Expo, and it's going to be me and Steven Schroeder, one of the co-CEOs of Napoleon, along with Grant Falco. And it's going to be a live episode, and I just cannot wait for you guys to hear the topic that we're discussing. I think it's super, super relevant to a lot of you who listen. Now, one thing that I do want to point out to you guys is in April, I'm actually going to be headed out to UBG's Byers University in Tampa, Florida. And that's going to go from April 20th to 23rd. But I'm really stoked to go there. I've never been to UBG before, but I'm going to be there this year. I'm really, really stoked about this. I've read a lot about their events, and I've talked with a lot of UBG dealers, and I think that this is going to be a super, super fun time. So if you're going to be at the UBG Buyer Show, you need to come and check out my booth. It's going to be for a product called Wi-Fi. Now, Wi-Fi is something that I've been working on for the last three years, and I am so stoked to finally bring it to market. But UBG is going to be really fun fun. And I'll tell you guys, we just might do a live episode of the podcast from the UBG Buyers University. So stay tuned for more on that. The very last thing I'll say before we head out into the new year is that one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is what we do with the community that's being formed here. And so as season four debuts, There's going to be some other things I want to bring to the table that will help bring our community of listeners together. And I've got a lot of ideas floating through my head, but 
I think there's a way that we can start to share ideas in this community, put together courses on specific things that dealers and manufacturers have questions on. We can offer training along with tools that I use to grow my business every day and even put together learning cohorts of like-minded dealers who want to tackle an objective together. So more on that in season four, but I cannot wait to see where this goes. You know, When I look at this, we're 47 episodes in, and it just blows my mind how far we've come. When I first got the idea for this podcast almost two years ago, I didn't have any idea that it would turn out exactly like this, and I count it as a huge blessing. And I'm serious when I say that the people listening to this are the future leaders and innovators of our industry. You know, Now is not the time to sit back on our laurels. There have been some amazing things that have got us here, but it's time to start pushing the envelope and thinking differently. And I know from the emails and the phone calls and the questions that I get that you guys are the ones who are not settling for the status quo and are continuing to push yourselves for what does business look like in this new landscape. And, you know, I think it's something really special that we have created here, and I'm humbled that I get to be a part of it. So with that in mind, I hope you guys have an incredible next few months. I cannot wait for the content that season four is going to bring. But for now, I hope that you guys have an amazing Christmas and holiday season with your friends, family, and loved ones. I hope you have an incredible start to 2020, and I hope that you use this time to think about the things that you've learned in this podcast and how you can apply them so that 2020 can be a year like no other. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys sometime soon. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. 